You're listening to the Pharma Forum podcast. My name's Dominic Tyre, and I'm Pharma Forum's creative and editorial director. For episode 23, I spoke with Brendan Martin, who's acting head of Europe and general manager UK and Ireland for Al Nylon, about its work in gene silencing. We also looked at just what it means to be a biotech in 2020 and his own approach to biotech leadership. With the impact of COVID-19 still inescapable in so many ways around the globe, we also discussed how it's affected Al Nylam and how the company works. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and Stitcher, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. So, Brendan, welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. Thank you, Darwin. And so, uh, for those listeners who maybe aren't uh, entirely familiar with Al Nylam or your work in, indeed in gene silencing, can you tell us a little bit about the company? Sure. Um, so, Al Nylam was founded with a very specific mission in mind and a sp- very specific purpose um, around RNA interference. So, back in the late 90s, uh, a series of observations were made about. Um, a naturally occurring process of controlling gene expression in the cell uh, through selective destruction of messenger RNA. And this had obvious potential as a therapeutic strategy if it could be controlled. So Alilam was set up uh, in 2002 with the very specific purpose of harnessing this observation in biology to develop useful therapeutics in human medicine. And uh, what we've been successful in doing is demonstrating a very reproducible, repeatable, predictable ability to downregulate or silence the expression of specific genes at will. And that signals the way to uh, a very powerful therapeutic strategy in the future. And we have already uh, managed to license two drugs um, for very different indications in, in genetic diseases. And we have a number of other exciting prospects in our pipeline to come to fruition, hopefully, in the next uh, five to ten years. And in, indeed, I believe your, your chief executive, um, John Maraconore, um said that you may even have uh, four drugs on, on the market by the end of 2020. Of course, you've already made your own bit of uh, biotech history, I believe, with in terms of getting the first first ever FDA approval for a, a gene silencing drug. So, certainly, sounds like you're making making great strides at the moment with the technology. Yes, indeed, we got uh, FDA and EMA approval in 2018 for our first uh, RNA drug, and that's now on the market in the US and Europe and Japan, and um, it is meeting or exceeding our expectations as a as a therapy in a disease where uh, previously uh, there weren't many that many options for patients. It's a, a, in a devastating, progressive genetic disease. It really has brought hope onto the horizon for that community of patients. And then uh, last year we licensed our second in a different genetic disease, and we have a, an application currently under review. Uh, in both Europe and the US for a third drug um, and others coming in the near term. 
And we're, we're recording this episode of the, of the Pharma Forum podcast in May 2020. Currently, of course, the, the effect of, uh, effects of um, COVID-19 are pretty much inescapable in, in so many ways around the globe. Can you tell me a bit about the impact that the coronavirus has had on Al Nilam and, and how you work? Yes, indeed. So our first concern um, when this shutdown started and there was clear evidence in, in Italy, for example, that uh, there was a real risk hospital systems could become overwhelmed. Uh, so our first concern was around patients and the continuity of care for patients, the ability to diagnose new patients and, and bring them on to treatment. Um, uh, all of that seemed under threat as uh, health systems were enveloped in um, the coronavirus crisis. So we set about prioritizing what those risks were for patients and seeing if we could find mitigations. And uh, we've learned quite a few things uh, through that process. Uh, first of all, the importance of digital and virtual interactions uh, with physicians, because clearly visits to hospitals weren't on anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And so we found the medical community very receptive to uh, digital media and, and various ways of engaging online. Um, we also found that they were very receptive to uh, problem solving and, and, and solutions for their patients. And actually they were being very mindful and, and carefully planning how they could assure continuity of care uh, for the patients that they looked after, uh, even in a crisis situation. And one of the things that struck me is that if there was ever any doubt that there could be a relationship of trust between uh, the healthcare system and the pharmaceutical industry um, with a common goal of uh, taking care of patients, that doubt should have been dispelled through this exercise because uh, I, I think the level of collaboration and trust that was demonstrated through this period uh, was very strong and, and very effective. And, uh, you know, physicians planned carefully. They managed to come up with mitigations, some of which we could assist with uh, changing the site of infusions, uh, wider deployment of home care and ensuring an intact supply chain. Uh, and all of that has proven very effective in, in Europe, thankfully, so far. And uh, things look like they've been stabilized to a level where they're somewhat manageable. There are still challenges for new patients uh, accessing diagnostic services and outpatient clinics and, and so forth. Um, that's on its way back. But, um, you know, the continuation of adherence to treatment and so forth has been uh, very, very good. The continuity in clinical trials has been impressive. Um, so overall, it has pre presented a number of challenges, but um, most of those challenges have been met quite effectively in the disease area that we work in. And looking at your gene silencing or uh, RNAi uh, technology, uh, do you think there's um, scope for that to be used to, to target this particular coronavirus? Well, yeah, early on, we recognized that um, this is an RNA virus. And uh, that begs the question, can RNA silencing have an impact here? And back in the early days of Alnylam, when we started exploring a wide range of therapeutic strategies, we had programs uh, in respiratory diseases that uh, we learned a lot about delivery to the lung. Um, 
in those early days. Now, they, they are not programs that we've been actively pursuing in, in the last few years, but there is also one program that we've partnered with another company called Ver in infectious disease, which was um, around hepatitis B. Um, so we also learned a lot about uh, applying this technology to control the uh, reproduction of viruses. So with that platform, right back in January, we put a team together to investigate the possibility of um, using RNA interference to um, control this virus. And indeed, that program has proven very promising. Um, we identified sequences of DNA that were highly conserved through the evolution of coronaviruses, and that predicts that they're essential to the life of the virus. And uh, we screened over 300 uh, such targets and uh, reduced it down to a small number of um, uh, development, potential development candidates that were further screened in a, in a model that our partners at VIR have. Uh, to measure their effect on the virus. And in fact, it has been extraordinarily promising so far uh, to see that um, this approach is hugely potent at uh, repressing the growth of the environments, of the, sorry, of the virus. And uh, picomole concentrations can kill 99.9% of, of the virus that encounters. Uh, so, directly killing the virus with RNA interference is one strategy. The other strategy we're looking at is potentially, um, you may have heard lots spoken about these ACE receptors that uh, humans have in their respiratory tract that give the virus something to latch onto when it's inhaled. And there is also the potential to repress the expression of those ACE2 receptors and um, you know reduces a person's propensity uh, for the infection to take hold. Uh, so there's a number of strategies that we're pursuing and with the first development candidate that we've identified it will be a, a, a product delivered by nebulizer to the lung and targeted at uh, controlling the reproduction of the virus and, and uh, killing it essentially. So we hope to be in the clinic before the end of 2020, meaning uh, mm -hmm. testing this in humans. Um, uh, so it will take a little bit of time, but it is running at a pace that you know we have, certainly haven't achieved before. And I think many companies in the biotech industry would report uh, that, that the, the focus and the collaboration and the spirit that is behind this effort uh, has moved things along uh, much faster than we were able to manage even 10 years ago. Well, that's certainly uh, very encouraging to hear, and I'm sure the uh, the progress will be keenly watched. So uh, clearly, COVID-19 and the, the, the current pandemic uh, is going to very much define certainly 2020, if not um, the, the longer term um, in the, the years to come. But looking, looking, if we can turn to look at what it means to be a biotech uh, in, in today's environment, um, what would you say have been some of the sectors of current maybe challenges and, and highlights? Well, first of all, um, you know, if I look back over my lifetime from, particularly from the time I went to university, there's never been a more exciting time than uh, today in biotech. It's really a, an industry that whose promises has started to come to fruition. 
Um, you know, back in the 80s, we were looking at recombinant methods for manufacturing proteins. We were looking at the emergence of monoclonal antibodies and a growing understanding of the human genome. And over the last 30 years, that has um, evolved into developing a number of really exciting, highly targeted therapeutic strategies, um, gene editing, gene silencing, gene therapies. Uh, as well as the progress in, in um, using immune therapies, controlling cancer and so forth. So it's a hugely exciting time. Um, of course, that brings its own challenges. Each of these technologies, the technological platforms that have come along, um, such as recombinant proteins or monoclonal antibodies, once their potential has been realized, um, many, many companies crowd into the space and, and uh, um, you know, the landscape changes very quickly and the technology grows exponentially. And I think approaches to gene silencing and control of gene expression are just at that early phase now where people are, are starting to uh, join in, uh, which is great because, you know, the whole idea behind this is to develop more treatments for more patients. The challenges that bring, I suppose, with our heritage in doing this for the last 18 years, uh, we have established ourselves as leaders in RNAi, and um, we want to stay leaders. We want to stay relevant. Uh, we want to build uh, a global biotech company based on this platform. And um, of course, that brings its own challenges in terms of the allocation of capital, you know, the, the focus that was laser-like on just research and development uh, a few years ago, it now has to be shared with questions of how we manufacture sufficient oligonucleotides and how we build distribution networks and sales and marketing infrastructure around the world in order to achieve that. Uh, more generally though, the sort of challenges we face, uh, you know, regulators have to keep pace with all of this new technology that's coming out and constantly revise and reevaluate our, our regulatory systems to make sure they're fit for purpose. And similarly, uh, health technology assessors and payers in countries need to have ways of fully assessing the value of these technologies. And sometimes that can introduce delays and, and rate limiting steps for access to patients uh, for these drugs. And um, that can be frustrating. The development timeline is measured in years to decades. And if you add more years onto that by spent evaluating the value of the products before you can get paid for it, and, and patients are forced to wait for that, that can be frustrating because it seems like we're creating unnecessary barriers uh, to treating patients. So I think the importance of, of dialogue and, and a level of trust between uh, the industry and um, those responsible for purchasing and paying drugs and those responsible for evaluating is necessary. And that dialogue is, is time consuming, um, it's intensive, it's highly technical, uh, but it is very necessary. And, um, and it's also necessary that it continues to evolve alongside the technology as it evolves. So we've been uh, running on an article series on uh, our pharmaforum.com website where we've been interviewing uh, UK pharma and biotech uh, general managers. Um, I'd like to finish up this episode of the podcast by uh, asking you about your own approach to leadership and well, I guess what it means to lead a, a biotech in 2020. Hmm. Um, I guess I have a huge belief that if people have a clear view of 
the mission and what we're trying to achieve. And you facilitate people to bring their creativity and genius to that, that people will be motivated and uh, find ways to pursue that goal and it will foster innovation and, um, and creativity and you make some real progress. So I, I think it was Steve Jobs that said, we, we don't hire smart people to uh, tell them what to do. We bring in smart people to come and tell us what to do. And I think there's a lot of merit in that philosophy. Um, and it, it does help foster continuous creativity and innovation. Um, then uh, beside that, you have to have uh, financial discipline. I spoke earlier about the allocation of capital and what a, a challenging that question is uh, when the available capital has to be divided between research and development, selling expenses, distribution expenses and manufacturing expenses. So bringing that discipline to managing your finances um, is also a very important uh, element of, of building a successful biotech. So having a kind of a matrix organization where you bring uh, balance to those different imperatives is vital. And uh, I think the key to managing in, in a matrix is to really understand and, and question the biases that people bring to the decision making and try and conduct the orchestra so that it can work harmoniously um, rather than one element of the matrix pulling harder than others and uh, leading to distorted decisions. So it's all about bringing balance to those uh, preferences and understanding the biases, I think. But you know, what we do uh, when you listen to a patient explaining the impact our drugs have on them and their families, uh, what we do in, in this industry is just so relatable for any individual that I don't think you have to dig too hard to find the motivation to pursue that goal. And if you keep that central focus on, on a mission around patients and keep the various biases in, in the matrix in, in balance, I think you have a recipe for success. Good stuff. Well, Brendan, thank you very much for joining me on the PharmaForum podcast. Thank you, Dominic. It's a pleasure. That concludes this episode of the PharmaForum podcast and my chat with Brendan Martin at Al Nylon. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and Stitcher, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website to sign up for daily or weekly email pharmaceutical news and analysis bulletins and follow us on Twitter, where we are at Pharma Forum. <laughs> <laughs>